Alright guys, you're very welcome along to episode 51. This is Shane and this is Heartlines. Now we have another very special guest waiting in the wings. He is a tour guide and a genealogist. His name is John Ducey. How are you doing, John? Good morning. Now, so John, well, well, just want to ask, uh, where are you from? Are you from Are you from Dublin or where are you from around? I'm from Ireland? Dublin. I still live in Dublin. I've been in Dublin all my life. Yeah. Although I've worked in other countries. I'm from Blackrock, from south of the city. Um, ah, okay. Uh, to... Uh, uh, on the south side of the city, out along Dublin Bay. Anybody who doesn't know Dublin, uh, that's where I am. Well, I've done some research into you. I know you, yeah. go, you go back in the years, you were a garden designer, but then you went for garden design to study gene- genealogy. How did that come about? Do you have a family background in genealogy or was this a passion at first? No, um, how that came about, well, I've always had a love of history and heritage, but I work, I originally trained uh, in, in the botanic gardens here. I qualified in hor- amenity horticulture and for many, many years was involved in building and designing gardens and then moved into heritage gardens. And from that, when economy switched at times, I moved into conservation management. So I was actually managing heritage sites. And then that led naturally to tourists and people visiting and guiding them around. And I then moved, as I got getting older, into, uh, into tourism, into tour guiding as such. Yeah. And from that, because I'm interested in history and heritage and so many Irish people coming, or people coming to Ireland with Irish ancestry, I wanted to be able to answer their questions and deal with that professionally. So mm. I spent three years in UCD in the university here in Dublin studying genealogy and family history to degree level, yeah. part time. Um, but I, I have a certificate in genealogy and family history, Irish genealogy and family history from from the university. So it's a it's a uh, level seven award. It's a, a degree level award. So and that's, if it, that's me, if you're talking about like you know doing that. Uh, the college course in UCD was it was it mainly kind of uh, book work or was there some practical work where you went down like historical sites and stuff like that to kind of learn about Ireland per se? Well, it's a, it was in the School of Modern History. Okay, it, it is a discipline, a historical discipline, uh, a, 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 a academic research discipline. You know, we're dealing with primary documentation in archives, yeah. mm. and we are tracing in family lines. Yeah. It is the history of the everyman. You know, okay. it's, yeah. it's, it's historically genealogy only mattered. Uh, you know, genealogy is the study of family lines of inheritance. Um, uh, only mattered to those who had money. Titles to hand, land on, hand on the nobility. They were the people who were interested in genealogy. The rest of us paid very little attention to it. And then arrives the phenomenon of the computer and Google search <laughs> engines and yeah. the vast amount of digitization of records taking place. And that means that you and I can now trace and find our ancestral records. Before it was the phenomenal needle in the haystack, impossible mm. almost to do. Now, because of the power of search engines, we can actually identify the records and trace them through. Now, there are major complications in doing that. And I'll talk a little bit of that to you for, for Irish ancestry. But uh, that's essentially it. So it's democratized it. The interest of maybe 2% of the population has now become the interest of 100% of the population. Uh, you know, something I think in the American market, something like 80% of Americans say they're actively interested in finding their family ancestry. And discovering it i've actually done that i've looked into doing the ancestry one of the ancestry websites and whenever i heard americans say to me oh i'm eight percent irish now i actually believe them because i i well i well i my my number has come up as 99 percent irish from like you know my family's from the west of ireland that kind of northwest of ireland and even part of scotland and also i got one percent from like eastern europe and i've also yeah. got a percentage from puerto rico i don't know how that works out but basically i'm mostly irish but I can see why people say, oh, I'm 3% Irish or I'm 8% Irish. Now I understand that since I've done that DNA testing. You know, the DNA testing is a snapshot of a particular period of your ancestry. So it's, and it's also not static because the more people who do samples, the percentages can change. Oh, but what okay. is identifying in your family situation is the majority of your family yeah, ancestry or genetics go back to prehistory here. Uh-huh. Um, the 1% that you were recording of Eastern European origin would be early prehistoric migrations into Ireland. That would be the original peoples arriving here probably, you know, although that's hard to, to figure out, but that's uh, the lineage of European. So you've got that European element. Um, 
And uh, most Irish people have this mix. They're the mix of the Gaelic Irish speakers, Gaelic Irish, which is the West Coast of more recent times, but was everybody, mm. um, plus the Norman French influence coming in there. They bring relatively small numbers in, and they are Norse Vikings anyway who settled in the north of France. So if you have the Norse Viking element, the major cities and towns being founded by the Vikings about a thousand years ago, Dublin included. Um, so they're a major part of the culture of Ireland, but they assimilate and become Gaelic speakers. Um, and then you have the arrival of English settlers. Now, they are Anglo-Saxon bloodlines. Uh, they come in, but they intermarry readily. The old English, as they're referred to. Mm. Um, the Normans, when they come into Ireland, they conquer Ireland and they make their king, the king of England, the overlord over the Irish kings. That was the situation for many centuries and rule Ireland in that way. They don't supplant the native population. They're kind of a layer above them. Um, they are typically have names beginning with Fitz. So that's son of, by the way, Fies in Northern uh, French. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Fitzgerald um, or D, de Burgo, Burke, as it becomes anglicized. Yeah. Um, and that's of. So uh, D is of and Fitz is son of. The Gaelic Irish equivalents of that are Mac, son of, and O, O apostrophe in front of lots of names like O'Brien, for example. That's literally of the family of Brian ah, or O'Neill. Right. Uh, so they, they're the wider family group. They're not mm. the father-son descent. Mac implies father-son. O means the cousin of. Uh, O'Brien is because Brian Boru, who was a high king, a very successful king in Ireland and left a tremendous le um, legacy. All his nephews, nieces, cousins, everybody decided to call themselves O'Brien. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so we're yeah. of the family of Brian, but we're more yeah. distantly related. Mm. And in addition to that, in terms of names, we're talking about names at this point. You have the fact that if you worked for the the O'Brien, the O'Brien, Brian Baru, you might also describe yourself as O'Brien. So you're O'Brien's man. Yeah. Ah, so all right. can signify the wider group. It may not actually mean genetically related. Whereas Mac would imply the son of, yeah. So it'd be like um, the servants as well could be, could call themselves O'Brien or O'Neill yeah. because they wanted to be part, they were extended family in a sense because they were part of yes. the family yes. of oh, the okay. territory of of the tribe of of order. Now we're going back over a thousand years, over five hundred years ago, for this sort of stuff to happen. After that, people start adopting names because of changes in spelling and things like that. So mm. somebody who should be O'Neill becomes a MacNeil. That's all lost in the midst of time. We shouldn't get over concerned about it, but what the genetics show us is that it's reasonably consistent. It's reasonably true, you know, that if you describe yourself as O'Neill or O'Brien or O'Kelly, you come from Gaelic stock. You come from that uh, ancestral strand in Ireland. The other major ones we've seen coming in are the Anglo-Irish. Now, the Anglo-Irish are the really are the Protestant settlers who arrive after the conquest of Ireland in the 1500s and into up to early 1600s. So there's a century when the Tudor kings of England, Henry VIII, the man who had six wives, and his daughter Elizabeth really conquer Ireland. After that, before that, the English kings only really ruled in the Pale. Pale is a palatine, an area where, a king, where they were princes in their own right. So that's around Dublin and the major cities, Cork, Galway, and Limerick. There, the king ruled in his own right as prince. So the king of England is prince, and he rules in his own right. Everywhere else, he's ruling through another local ruler, and that's the majority of the island, until the, um, the conquests of the 17th century. Then there is a, a new group of people coming in, and they're called the Anglo-Irish. Now, they have typically English names, so they would be Browns, for example one of them, um, Smith, of course, but they can also be translations of Gaelic names sometimes when we delve into the records, but they would have typically English sounding names, surnames, and they after a while assimilate also, not only do the Norman French become Gaelic speakers after a period, but the English become part of the Irish nation, uh, the Anglo-Irish. Today, they would largely describe themselves as simply being Irish. They don't make that distinction anymore. Um, Whereas uh, the next group of major settlers to come in are the Scots-Irish. Now, the Scots-Irish come in from Scotland after the conquest of Northern Ireland, in particular of Ulster, by the English. The English do the fighting, create a vacuum, and Scottish settlers come in because the United Kingdom of England and Scotland had just been formed. They remain largely Presbyterian, 
by religion and don't intermarry uh, with the other populations in the same way. The Protestants who come in, the Anglo-Irish, are Anglicans, Episcopalians in North American terms. They are Catholics with a small c, if you'd like to call it that, and they more readily intermarry with the Roman Catholic population, which is the Gaelic-Irish population. There is a more, much more blurring of the lines going on in mm. those populations, and it's to do with class. The big division yeah. there is class. Um, so uh, today, all of them except perhaps the Scots-Irish describe themselves as Irish first, um, and, uh, um, but the Scots-Irish tend to describe themselves as British and Irish. And that's, of course, part of the politics of our island, as you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so bloodlines yeah. matter. And, of course, the final group coming in then are there's minority groups, um, things like the Huguenots, which are French Protestants coming in. They're huge influences on Irish life. Uh, the Latouche banking family being a famous example of that. But many of the innovators, the scientists, the educated, they were technically advanced people who fled the religious persecution of Protestants in France under the the reign of Louis XIV. Uh, um, they come into Ireland, they settle here, they add a lot of technology to Ireland. And then following on that, just shortly afterwards, our German Protestants similarly treated, uh, being persecuted, fleeing because of the religion. They're Palatines, uh, they're called they're from the Palatine area of Germany. And they're also technically advanced. So families like the Switzers, which famously had a Dublin store there then. And then another group that's similarly, but English in origin, are uh, the Quakers. All of those add a huge amount of technology, of, of, of innovation to the native population. Um, the way I describe it, I think the best way to describe any nation is uh, you, build, you go to build a people. Yeah. The basic ingredient is flour if you're baking a cake. Yeah. So I think that's the prehistoric people, the, Anglo the Gaelic Irish, which is the majority of the DNA today. Yeah. But what makes it a very interesting cake and what makes it different is all the other ingredients that you add to that. And they're the other groups coming in. And mm. it's that mixing that produces the modern Irish mm. language, uh, nation. Now, uh, we today are speaking English, one of our two native languages to each other. English is a native language created in the streets of Irish cities at the same time as it is created in the streets of English cities in the 14th century. That's the period of Geoffrey Chaucer. Uh, major language groups merge to become the modern English language. And it's, create, it's a native language of Ireland, as is Gaelic, Irish. It's Irish, called Irish in the English language, but Gaelic is more clearly the name of it. And that's why I'm using it, because if we start talking Irish about everything, it gets very confused when we're having this conversation. So most Irish people would simply call that language Irish, but it is Gaelic, in, as, technically as a language. Mm, yeah. Well, I actually, like, I know, like, like Scots have Gaelic and we have Gaelic and there is some similarities and differences. So you were saying like Mac and McGregor. So Mac, M-A-C yeah. versus M-C. Is that the same? Is that of or the son of? But remember, these are language, the, the, the change of language is taking place. So a name mm. in the Gaelic language and Scots Gaelic is closely related to Irish Gaelic. Yeah. And in fact, Scots Gaelic is the product of Irish settlers going to Scotland in, in, in between the 4th and uh, the 10th century. So or, Around that period, there's a colonization of Scotland taking place by people from Ireland. Yeah. So from Northern Ireland in particular. And they're bringing the Gaelic language in. That Gaelic language then dominates Scotland. Everybody ends up speaking it, in fact, until the late medieval period. So then the language Scots, which is another language related to English and Norse, takes over. Scots is the language of Robbie Byrne. Today, we're dealing with names which are anglicized, they're Ang English phonetic spellings of Gaelic Irish and Scots names, as well as Norman French names as well. So this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with mm. an, a, a filtering process. So Mac, M-A-C, becomes M-C or M-C, or sometimes in the case of Scottish spellings, M apostrophe. So Macintosh, yeah, which is mm -hmm. a Scottish name, it mm -hmm. now has become M apostrophe, I-N-T-O-S-H. Ah, but it's all okay. the same name, all the same term, Mac, son of, in an anglicized spelling. It's all spelled of, of the Gaelic language. Old Gaelic Irish populates Scotland and becomes another language called Scots Gaelic. Ah, okay. Yeah. So you, it depends on what period of history you're looking at. When we get to written records, what we're dealing with, because officialdom is English speaking, is an anglicized version of the name, by and large. The Gaelic Irish spellings 
don't persist except in very historic records. Um, largely in common use when you're quoting a baptism, a burial, a death, uh, a, a marriage, it will be an anglicized form. And the priest, the Catholic priest, for example, who may have known Gaelic, probably didn't know how to spell it. Ah. He probably wasn't literate in Gaelic. Uh, he was literate in English and Latin. So he, and anyway, for official purposes, he wrote the name in English. Oh. Tax records are the same. They're writing them in an, Eng an anglicized version, and that's a phonetic spelling. Massive amounts of variance going on. This is off the, the trail of it. Where do Welsh come in? Because like, well, Wales are upside England and they have a totally different language. Where did that come from? Is that from a, a, a form of Gaelic or Scots Gaelic or Gaelic? No, it's it's a different Celtic language. Okay. There are th two surviving Celtic languages. Um, I'll explain what Celtic is in a minute, but there are two surviving Celtic languages. There's Gaelic or Gaelic, mm -hmm. that's Scotland, Ireland, and the Isle of Man, Manx, which is an island between Ireland and Scotland. There's another form of it there. It's not really much used, and that's a tiny population, but that's there as well. The, the other group of Celtic languages are the Britonic languages, and they are Welsh, Breton, northern France, oh. and Cornish. And those are three surviving uh, Celtic languages, but they're not close, closely related to Gaelic. Um, a Gaelic speaker has great difficulty understanding them, and vice versa. So mm. I, I have some knowledge of Irish, as much, most Irish people do. I can just about decipher a Scottish speaker, a Gaelic Scottish speaker, when they write something. The words are similar. Yeah. So when they, somebody wishes me happy Christmas or something, and I, I can just about read that. Yeah. In Welsh, it's completely different. Mm. There are very few words in common. Even. They're just, it's a completely different language. But both Scots Gaelic, Welsh, and Gaelic Irish influence modern English. So the words end up in English, but spelled completely differently. Terminology gets altered. Uh, phrases become one word in English. It's a process of alliteration, but it is one of the parents of English, in fact, oh. as it's spoken. Yeah. Along with Anglo-Saxon, the Germanic languages, Norman French, the language of the court and of rulers um, in, for centuries, and uh, Norse Viking, the founders of the cities. Yeah. They're all mixing to make our modern Irish version of English in particular. Yeah, that's fascinating. Now, I want to talk, I want to circle back a bit, because you said, like, yeah. briefly at the start, you said, Genealogy wasn't really of the like lower classes or, you know, that it was more of an upper class kind of thing. Like, so what was it? Was it like kings and tutors kind of looking to see, you know, the bloodline and see if they can continue that bloodline on? Or how, 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 what, how did that come about? It only mattered to people because they were leaving things to their family. Okay. It's inheritance that it matters for. So you have it because your father had it, because your grandfather had it. Well, if you didn't own anything, and most people didn't own anything. They were tenants. They were paying rent to a, a, a lord. Mm. It wasn't relevant. Oh. You know? So it just wasn't important to record your ancestry in that way. You may be interested in your father was, your grandfather was, maybe your great-grandfather. And after that, it really didn't matter. Whereas the others kept going for centuries because their inheritance of that land, that title, dependent upon proving in documentary form their descent. So it's to do with inherited wealth. And it mattered to the eldest son and really often didn't matter to the rest of the son. So a typical Norman knight coming into Ireland might have 10 sons. Mm. Um, only one of them inherited everything. The other 10, the other nine got nothing, but ended up working as his henchmen, his servants, whatever. And by the time of their grandsons or great-grandsons, they have become sunk down to the level of the peasant, of the tiller of the soil. So they have the family name, but they're distant cousins and they are as poor as everybody else. So it's, 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 in, it's a way you have to be kind of born first, really, to be getting that inheritance. Is that what you're saying? The uh, Norman French practice, and, and yeah. that's the system we have until modern times, a mm. uh, thing called primogeniture, the inheritance by the eldest son of everything. Ah, okay. And the rest don't own anything. They keep the estates intact that way. Yeah. Whereas the Gaelic tradition was that you have a thing called the Derafina, which is the people of the true blood. They elect a leader, but the leader, the chieftain, the king, 
is a, um, a custodian, a steward for one generation, and then the Derefin elect another one. So it could be anybody who's of the blood relationship. So they're much more egalitarian. All of that collapses in the 1600s in Ireland. It's, it's history, but it has its legacy in our naming traditions. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's basically all I'm saying. So if you happen to be a Fitzgerald, it doesn't mean that you are of the closely related to the Dukes of Leinster, for example, who, is, who are the Fitzgeralds, yeah? mm. the yeah. you know, Earls of Kildare, the premier nobleman. You can be the descendant of a younger son of a younger son of a younger son who ended up being a poor potato farmer by the yeah. 1840s. So it means very little um, in that way. That's why the records are important yeah, yeah. in terms of law of inheritance. The rest of us didn't bother with it until now. Yeah. And now we're interested and we're curious about this and we want to know more about it. And add to that, that in the 19th century and the 20th century, people moved. They moved from the countryside to the cities. They moved around much more and they and the emigrated, obviously, as part of the huge Irish diaspora. Mm-hmm. And now they want to know something about the lives of their ancestry. What, who were their people? Where did yeah. they come from? And yeah. um, the emotional impact of bringing people to stand, I've done this many times, in that graveyard, that ruined churchyard, usually they're typically ruined medieval churchyards in Ireland, and they stand there and they look around and their family name is all over the place on all the tombstones, just everywhere. Their name is on the tombstones everywhere. Mm. You know, mm. they're called William Tobin. And there are William Tobins everywhere. Yeah. And then you can say to them, you know that you've got over a thousand years of your DNA in this soil. This yeah. is where your family come from. These may be your, we don't know whether they're direct ancestors or they're, they're cousins or whatever, but they are your people. That is, has an enormous emotional impact for somebody who has moved around, who's sent, who only heard a family rumor that they had Irish heritage, for example, and they have know these names and they have the names in their family and then suddenly they're standing there. Yeah. Yeah. It's quite a, quite a, you know, and they left in the 1850s or the mm. 1860s, um, which is the huge mass migration at the period of the potato famine of the, of the Great Hunger. Um, I have uh, actually uh, uh, done that with people, but also I've done it more recent. People left in the 1890s. I had one case, uh, I'll always stick in my memory, driving this man around. He was wanted to find his ancestral places. He commissioned me to do some research in advance. I did the research. I'd identified the townland. I'd got the records. and But I also discovered that I suspected that the family, a member of his family, may be still on the farm. They may be still farming the same land. So what happens? One son emigrates, the other son inherits. That's typically the pattern. So mm-hmm. one, one son of the 10 of them potentially remains farming. Yeah. So we went on chance, knocked on the farm door and house door, and the man who opened the door looked like the man I was driving around. Wow. Identical. They could be twins when we stood them beside each other. Now, obviously, dress and things like that were different, but they were so close to each other in resemblance. And even, even though one was an American and the other one was very much a male one, their, their gestures, their hand gestures, their expressions. The last contact between the two branches of the family was before the First World War. We worked out. And then this phenomenon of Ireland, you know, took place. The hospitality took over. And boy, were they welcome. Yeah, yeah. The phone started ringing. <laughs> they started phone, phoning around each other. And the cousins started appearing. Mm. And the cousins started appearing with photograph albums full of people who looked like the man who was driving around. Now, he had, his father died when he was young. He'd inherited that name from yeah. that. And he knew very little about his ancestry. And then suddenly he was in a room full of cousins. And, you know, boy, was he welcome back. The other thing to say about that phenomenon is it's emotional for two reasons. It's emotional because the American coming home is finding something about themselves. But also every Irish family is raised on the tradition of the family members who went away, had to go for economic reasons, and we never heard about them again. We know nothing about what happened to them. They just disappeared. I remember my mother talking about her cousin. And she always wondered what happened to her cousin. He just went and they never heard of him again. Men tend to do this more than women. And, uh, you know, when, when they turn up, you know, even though the, dis- the direct link is now dead, died, the children, the grandchildren have grown mm. up with this memory of the family member who disappeared and then their descendant walks in the door. That okay. is emotional. That is, you know, 
that's the, uh, you probably can hear is my voice, that's the lump in your throat moment. And that's what people get from doing this. Yeah, this is definitely. what you achieve if you're that situation. Yeah, yeah I'd say that it's quite revelatory as well. Like you get, like I'd say it could be, I'd say some of the information that comes back could be quite, as you say, harrowing and quite like can, can get them, you know, get that lump in the throat, you know, make them quite emotional because they're learning about stuff they didn't think they, they thought they'd never had a family and then they realized, whoa, this is my family. Wow. Yeah, and also the hardships that took place because mm. you know people were em economic emigrants. They you don't up sticks and move to the other far, far far side of the world at a time when you couldn't easily get back. It's a different phenomenon today for the Irish who can fly mm. back cheaply and you know they and telecommunications. You know what we're doing now means that you can contact people. You know yeah. and have a conversation. You don't lose contact. Back in the in in you know before the 1950s or the 1960s they had what was called the the american wake here you know they actually had a party to send off this person who's emigrating uh, to take a lowly paid job in the united states or london or wherever and the cost of coming back was huge mm. so they may never see them again the risks were great so you sent by said goodbye to your family or friend or whatever and then they stayed to to mourn with the parents the event yeah so it was very emotional you can hear the emotion in my voice yeah, again yeah, that's yeah, an extremely emotional yeah, experience they yeah. called it the american wake a wake yeah. is a funeral yeah so that's so when they turn up again wow you know that's you know so sometimes my american clans say, will we be welcome and i say boy will you be welcome Mm. Once we make that contact, you are going to be so, so valued, so welcome. Yeah. On the other side, they have met their aunts, their family members in the States or wherever, and they didn't want to talk about it. They often know very little about their ancestry in Ireland, simply because their family member didn't want to talk about it, because the emotional burden of recalling all of that was too high. That was mm. hard to talk about. Um, it's like post-war, post-traumatic things. You know, people have been involved in conflict or something. They don't want to talk about it. It's really living a nasty memory. So a lot of them don't want to talk about what happened and why they had to leave. They often left with a sense of failure, a sense of being beaten mm. out of Ireland. And they didn't want to revisit that memory. And then now their descendants want to discover it. And I always say to them, your fam, you are the children of the survivors. Celebrate this, celebrate it, be thankful, and honor the memory of your ancestor who left under huge pressure and succeeded. Mm. Yeah, it is a hugely positive human story. The Irish diaspora has gone around the world, were very poor when they migrated, and now they're at the top of society everywhere. I look, you know. 36 of uh, sorry of the um, 36 American presidents so far, including Joe Biden, 33 had Irish ancestors. Yeah, it is a huge impact on America, where it's the third large ethnic group, but it's a quarter of Canadians, it's half of Australians, it's you know, it it you go around the world, it's it's it, it, the Irish are literally everywhere, yeah. and they're they're in is in in senior positions and leading society in various ways. Uh, and, and often a mixture of obviously wealthy and not wealthy people, but the ability of the Irish people to survive and to overcome hardship has, is phenomenal. It's not unique, but it is phenomenal. No, it is. I mean, like there's so many stories of that. Like I'm, I have a lot of family. Well, when I done my DNA testing, what's your thoughts on DNA testing as, as a whole? Do you find it fascinating or do you find uh the, the, the old school route are a better way to find about who, are you, who where you're from. You need to do both. DNA testing is one of the tools. Yeah. So it's not the answer on its own. And as I pointed out, the science is continually evolving. So it's based upon a percentage of the people who have been sampled. So as the more and more people have been sampled, that result will change. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, the, the, it's that phenomenon. So it's getting better and better. In immediate circumstances, say you're adopted, genetics can answer a question for you very quickly. In situations where you're in the United States and you have no idea if you have any Irish ancestry, and it turns up that you definitely have Irish ancestry, 
it's a valuable clue, but it doesn't tell you who you're descended from. It, in terms of a person, it just tells you of that. Now, it will have cousin matches. It will have, these people are percentage, the same percentage of DNA, and it's identical DNA. And that mm. means that these, pe these other people are related. So that gives you other avenues to start looking back into records. So all of that's valuable, but it's, you still have to go and get the historical records out. Now, you have to go and get the births, marriages and deaths out, and you've got to go about tracing ancestry in that way, which is the paper trail. Yeah. And that is the, has to be the first place you go for a search. And then you look at DNA alongside that. So often I end up with that situation where I was describing in the, in the graveyard, where I can tell them this group of people, they're all called, part of the Irish tradition is that you're named for, the eldest son is named for their grandfather. And the grandfather had 10 sons and he was called John Murphy. So now there are 10 grandsons called John Murphy. How do you want to decipher that, all living and farming in the same district, mm. how do you unravel that? That's nearly impossible to do. DNA can do that and identify which one is the John Murphy that you're descended from. Now, what percentage? Like, I, I remember I got matches and it's saying like 3%, 8%. Like, what's the lowest percent that will kind of uh, filter out like who's definitely not related directly to you? Well, they are related to you if, first of all, there's a DNA match. However, okay. it's how far back they're related. Oh, okay. And what percent, the percent, the smaller the percentage, the further back in time. Because in rough rule of terms. Right, yeah. okay. So, so your 1% uh, Eastern European is probably harkening back to an ancient nomadic population of Europe. That 1%, we probably all have it, who are Europeans. The percentage in the Puerto Rico is probably an Irish immigrant heading to Puerto Rico at some point um, and having a child by Puerto Rican. I think that's what it is. I think it's... Or it could be an American influence because the Americans are involved there. It could be a Spanish influence. It, this is not yeah. impossible to tell. Yeah. But those small percentages are just interesting. It's the big percentages. You want at least 25%. And if you're 40%, or, you know, that's a real indicator of what's going on in terms of ethnicity. And mm. DNA is not about ethnicity. In fact, one of the things I always say, first of all, who are the Irish in terms of this? Well, it's got nothing to do with ethnicity. It's got nothing to do with religion. And it's got nothing to do with politics. What it means is they left a record here. That's all. So in terms of this, you've got an Irish record. So there could be somebody from somewhere else who married in Ireland and had children here or simply died here or lived here for a period. And their records will show up as Irish. <laughs> ah, That's okay. all it is. Yeah. So, yeah, majority of people, of course, it is descent from people who have been here for centuries, not thousands of years. But for a smaller percentage, it could be somebody who's here for a relatively short period. Oh. It could be here for two or three generations. It's not, nothing in stone here. An yeah. Irish record is just that, an Irish record. And it doesn't confer ethnicity. Oh, okay. Such. Yeah. What does it mean when it says second cousin twice removed, fifth cousin once removed? What, is, what does all that mean? Like, well, this is very hard to describe in words okay. because you'd need a diagram to do it. However, right. okay. okay, just go back to first principles. Your brothers and sisters have half your DNA. Okay. Okay? Because you've got common parents. It's a mix, but you've got more or less, you've a high percentage of that. They're very, the closest replicas to you, same parents. Your brothers, your mother's sister's children or brother's children or your father's brother, they have one quarter of your DNA. Oh, okay. They are the same relationship to you as your brother's children in terms of DNA. Yeah. So when we start talking about cousins, uh, it's called a thing called sanguinity. Uh, it's the relationship by blood and percentages of it. So as you move out further and further in the family, you'll get to second and third cousins. It's the percentage of inheritance is the way I would describe it for you. Mm. But in actual family tree terms, your cousins, your mother's cousins, first cousins, children, or your second cousins. Yeah. Mother's, first, mother's first, first, cousins. first cousins, children, or your second cousins. Yeah, so yeah, so yeah. You come down a generation. Mother's first, yeah, because yeah, I think that's over in America. So I found because yeah, I found and the I, next yeah. generation down becomes third cousins. So that's that. Hold on, let, let me show this. 
So your mother's cousins, and then your mother's cousins' daughters' children are your third cousins, is that it? Or sons? Or third cousins to your children. Okay, right, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And then you've got this is you're once removed and twice. Uh, it's these are just ways of putting into uh, words that descent of DNA of, of 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 genetics. I think that's the way our blood, as we were historically referred to it as. Would twice remove was twice removed mean? So let, let, let me try this. It's the generations moving on. Yeah. So it's basically so you move down generations. Yeah. So yeah. I'm, so instead of my mother's cousins, it's my mother's cousins, cousins, cousins. Is that it? Exactly. <laughs> okay, and then okay. And we're yeah. all related to each other on this planet, by the way. There is no there. If you get into this, you realize that in reality, all humanity is ultimately related to our, all the, all the rest of humanity. We all come from some common ancestry, way back. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, when you dig into this, so you have this percentage of early European in your DNA, and mm. that's related to the people who left left Africa, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the Rift Valley. So ultimately, everybody can be traced back to the people who left the Rift Valley and whatever, that billion, how many, eight million years ago or something of that order. That's when they think the first human beings came out of trees and walked along upright and began to function as what we recognize as human beings. As you were saying, like nomadic people, so I have some percentage from uh eastern europe so even nomadic people have maybe moved to ireland and then we also irish people are nomadic as well we've moved all over the world we've been north south well, east, no, i think west. i meant a lifestyle and it's before farming oh okay so farming comes to ireland from the mediterranean basin farming originates in eastern mediterranean anatolia modern-day turkey um sumer modern-day iraq we believe and it over about a, a two or three thousand year period, it migrates through the Mediterranean and then up along the west coast of Ireland to Ireland. So that's the Iberian Celtic peoples, if we we would sometimes refer to them as. But the the Iberian Celts, these are the people who come in first with farming. We believe, although we don't know that for hundred percent. More and more DNA is being done by genia, by archaeology. Nowadays, we've, it's a very new science being able to take this tiny fragment of bone and extract its DNA and start the comparisons. When they're doing that, they're finding the Mediterranean bloodline. And uh, this is the Iberian bloodline, and it's through the Mediterranean basin. Um, interestingly, Irish myth and legend is that the Irish people are the Millispon, the sons of Spain. Ah. So myth and legend in the great yeah, in, in the Irish sagas is actually um, now being borne out by geneticists, genetic studies, which show that the farmers, the earliest farmers are coming along that coastal route. And you think about it, it makes sense. You get in a boat and you go along the coastline and then eventually you end up in Ireland. And these were seafaring people. That's how people got to Ireland. They, you know, were, were an island. Yeah. So that's happening in 6,000 years ago, uh, that kind of period. And this trade between northern Spain and the south coast of Ireland, through all the millennia. And, and that's now understood as well. With trade comes cultural exchange also. So we also got the other element is then people moving eastward, uh, westwards across Europe. These are nomadic people following herds and then eventually settle on farm. And they end up in Ireland uh, around 500 BC. So they're later, they're, they're the Celtic, the Latine Celts, the Celts that come in then. Um, I should mention what Celtic is or Celtic. It's now understood not to be an ethnicity. Uh, people are not genetically related necessarily who have these, that technology, that mythology, that language. Uh, those languages, should say they're plural, uh, different groups of languages. They are adopting the same customs, the same religious beliefs, uh, the same technology. So just like today, everybody Christian is not descended from the common source. Christianity is something that peoples have adopted, mm. or Buddhism, or Hinduism, or whatever. Um, Celtic is a, is a phenomenon like that. It's across nationalities, across ethnicities, um, and it's not one single group of people. So we're not all necessarily genetically related to each other, even though we, are, we have this common inheritance of Celtic traditions. Now, Celtic why are the Irish Celts? And the Irish are Celts because we convert to Christianity directly from Celtic beliefs. So are the Scots, so are the Welsh, and so on. Whereas in the rest of Europe, you first of all have the Roman Empire coming in between, and the Roman Empire 
displaces or displaces the Celtic gods and replaces replaces them with um, with uh, Christianity. Then after a period, um, then the Roman Empire collapses. New peoples migrate in the Germanic tribes, Anglo-Saxons, etc. And they, uh, the Franks, in the case of the French, they displace all that Christianity. Damn, it, it dies out, and the Roman traditions, and then they become Christians. Yeah. So there's a number of layers between the Celtic peoples and the modern French, or whatever. Whereas uh, the modern English, whereas in Ireland, it's literally a light switch being flicked in the fifth century. 433, Patrick completes his mission and the Irish are officially Christian. We're Celts before that. So that's why we're Celtic. So Celtic has nothing to do with your ancestry in a way. It's what your ancestors might have believed. So yeah. it, it's, it's like a tribe. It's a belief system that's, that's it's a, the it, it's a belief, well, akin to Christianity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. you have yeah. pagan ancestry, all of us do, and we have Christian ancestry. And if you dig into your family tree, you may find other religions <laughs> as well. You know, yeah. it's unlikely, but it could be there. Mm. No reason why you mightn't have an odd Muslim or something in there in the mix if your people were coming from North Africa, for example, at some point in historic time. Yeah. And, oh, and if they were Muslim, they, would, they, would, you, would they have adapted to Christianity? That's how they've come part of your family. Yeah, well, yes, yeah, they would have married intermarried. You tend to okay. take, uh, as a phenomenon, you tend to take the religion of your wife. Oh, okay. Or, your, or at least she raises the children in her religion. Because she's the, the real, she, rocks yeah. the cradle, yeah. rocks the world. And the people who raise the children pass on these beliefs. So that tends to be the case. So the odd man arriving here who happened to be a Muslim who had children. The odds are his children would have been Christian. Because the woman would be the religious uh, and she leader. Would, she would be the one who's going to give, help form the religious belief. Even though officially there might be one thing, reality is that there will be the opposite. And that's the history of conversion of religions everywhere in the world. It's not yeah. just Christianity. It's the way people behave. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it tends to be like that. Tends yeah. to be like that, and and this is just a, a hint from a genealogical point of view. It's got no comment about any validity of any religion over any other one. It's yeah. just the way it, the phenomenon tends to be. So you tend to look immediately at that when you're looking at records and saying, ah, you know, this is obviously not an Irish surname. It sounds like he came from because his name comes from so. Yeah. And then if you're looking for records as you go back, where does he come from? What, what religion is he? And so on. Whereas a woman will take her husband's name and her identity will be obscured immediately. Wow. So it's, it's much harder to follow this because of this tradition of women nearly always taking their husband's name. And that's not just in Irish traditions or European traditions. It's globally the case, except in one or two societies. Now you're saying that like, uh, so where do your clients generally come from? Like what, what, what geographic location would they mainly be from when it comes to look for like their ancestry from yourself? Well, the majority of people I would see are North Americans. Okay. Because North Americans are extremely interested in this. And this is part, part of marketing to some extent. And also to the fact that the largest Irish diaspora that identifies as Irish American or Irish Canadian or whatever is in North America. So it's maths as well. And they're very interested in visiting Ireland. And Ireland is very much to the front. Um, I was reading The Economist this morning. My breakfast was a thing. I got a news feed from The Economist. And it, the comment was, uh, Joe Biden has green blood. Yeah. He had met Boris Johnson. Mm. And Northern Ireland was being discussed. And the comment by The Economist was, Joe Biden has green blood. There is no doubt about this. In other words, he will always side with Ireland because yeah. of his ancestry. Mayo, Even though they, yeah. we're talking about his great 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 grandfather at this stage, yeah, you know they left a long way back, but he will always side uh, over British interest. This phenomenon is very strong of 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 that. You know, it's very very strong. It seems that when 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 someone someone like confers or or or, or thinks that they have an Irish connection, it makes them more pure. To the world because if you're american and you have an irish connection that people go oh you're irish so there's some sort of mythical nature to it would you believe well that? yeah i mean the irish are seen as friendly yeah friendly yeah. able the yeah. look of the irish mm -hmm. one of the things i have to regularly answer to my american clients is what does the look of the irish mean and where does it come from and basically that is a a, a way of saying that whatever you do to an irish person they end up standing on their feet and thrive yeah 
the look of the Irish is actually a kind of a backhanded comment, uh, uh, compliment that no matter how much you knock down an Irish person, they'll stand up and they'll prosper. Yeah. It's, it's, it's that kind of thing. It's not true, by the way, for everyone that prospers, there's one that fails, of course. Yeah. And that's the tragedy of life. But um, especially in the harsh circumstances of the 19th century migrations, and the death tolls, the, the sad stories are enormous. But we're dealing with the children of the survivors. <laughs> so they're, they're the ones that have the happier experience. Um, but they are the happy survivors among a, a huge human catastrophe that occurred. Um, the, uh, so the, so that, that North American thing is huge. Australian is the next big population. But you know, the largest single Irish diaspora is in the United Kingdom across the water in Britain. More people of Irish descent are actually on the island of Britain than anywhere else in the world, but they don't identify as being Irish after a few generations. They assimilate. Yeah. And nowadays, they're beginning to turn out the fact that they have this Irish ancestry. Unless they bear a distinctively Irish name, um, they don't tend to pay attention to it. And just to, to give you uh, a read on the widespread nature of the phenomenon, the Queen has a lot of Irish blood genetically in our family tree. She, her, her children, through Diana Spencer, her grandchildren, have even more. You know? yeah. uh, Sarah Ferguson's grandmother was born in Pars Court House in County Wicklow. You know, the, the interconnections are enormous in, our, in, in British life and Ireland. We can't unravel that at this point in history. And indeed, most Irish people, including yourself, probably have one English ancestor somewhere in the family tree long forgotten mm. because of the intermarriage and interconnection over a thousand years yeah. between the islands but huge numbers are left in the 19th century to go to britain to settle into scotland into england into wales the industrial centers and they assimilated and would describe themselves as english today now speaking with you for well a short time because i only met you today you do have a fountain of knowledge and you see why you're a tour guide and you are a genealogist. So how do you combine, how do you combine your genealogist, genealogist background and your family history into your tours, your experiences with your guests? Like I believe you do bus tours and you're, you're planning on, 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 a and I'm releasing a new website about ancestry. How do you combine all that together? Well, first of all, people who come to visit Ireland, not don't just come to visit, uh, pretty places. Yeah. Yeah. Don't just come to, they come to engage with the culture of Ireland, mm. the people of Ireland. And what are the, what's the story of the people of Ireland is what they really are interested in. And that's where the genealogy fits, the family history fits. If you understand what it is to be Irish, what makes us different from other places, you can explain Ireland in a way that you can't explain it otherwise. So it marries perfectly with the general tourist. Um, because I have an a broader understanding of Ireland than somebody who hasn't studied this subject. And then in addition, huge numbers of people. Every time I have a group, I say, any Irish ancestry here? And inevitably, somebody will say, I have. You know, it may be married into the family. Maybe, you know, maybe the, the in-laws. Uh, but yes, it's nine times out of ten, there will be somebody with a connection through ancestry to Ireland. And that opens a whole new conversation as part of it. Um, but also, I just want to, you know, you go to a historic site in Ireland, you need to understand the historic site to explain it to people, mm. and you explain it to people in that way. It makes it more human. I think that's the way to put it, and more relatable to. Um, it's not always about what a king did or, you know, what a, whatever yeah. it's about. If you want to, or a pope or a bishop or whatever at a church, it's about the people. And that makes it much more interesting um, to people. So, yes, that's where it marries. In terms of um, people wanting to come here, a lot of people actually will reserve me and book me because they want that ancestral experience. They have know they have Irish ancestry and they want to visit the place that they came from, their ancestors mm. came from. They want to stand in the church where their ancestors got married. They want to visit the graveyard where they're buried. They want to find the homestead, the farmhouse where they migrated from. Now, that may not no, no longer exist, but the family, the field is there. And I can do that. I can usually find through taxation records where they were living and actually bring you to the location. 
It depends on what period they left at. But most people are left in the 19th century. I can actually locate a townland and probably an actual plot from that from the land registration maps. So if anyone listening from the UK or Ireland or America, for example, um, you make bespoke tours uh, in some yep. regards. So you bring them on like bus tours or like you bring them around Ireland to find our ancestry or would you bring them around like historical sites as well? Would you would you mix it up in a sense? Yeah, all that a tourist wants to see and do. Yeah, I will do that also. Yeah. It's part of a holiday. It's one or two days out of a holiday mm. that you'll spend on this. And I'm always conscious of the fact that in a group, one of them may be very interested in this and the other one will be not. And if it's a husband and wife, it'll only be one of their ancestors. One size ancestry probably we're dealing with. Mm. And the other one's not interested in the same way. Might be interested for their children's sake, but they're not interested in directly. Um, so it's important that it's light and it's interesting and it's not heavy and it's a mix and they're getting every, there's something in everybody for it in everybody. And the teenage kids will be bored out of their head by this. <laughs> but later in their life, they'll be grateful they did it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but at, you know, when you're a teenager, all of this is just you know, no go. That's not, it, uh, you need to be at a certain age in your life to start appreciating the importance of, of knowing who your people are in that way. Um, so it's very important to have a day that interests them as well. So there's always a mountain to climb. There's always something physically active to do in a day like that or whatever. That's my skill as a tour guide. I will make sure that everybody's enjoying themselves all the time. The yeah. timings all work out. Mm. There's good places to eat. There's good places to sleep. Yeah. I know I know Ireland. I know every <laughs> bump on the road. I know every business that's out there doing it. So I'm able to make sure that quality is there always. I drive my own uh, seven-seat luxury Mercedes Viano. Nice. It's a very comfortable car yeah. with... Uh, with air conditioning and so I can drive them around on that myself. I'm licensed to do that. I'm also licensed to drive minibuses, which can take up to 16 people. Um, I can organize that. So sometimes for the larger extended groups, sometimes I'll have 10 of them, for example, you know, they want to do that. I'll do a single day tour out of Dublin, which are multiple day tours from Dublin where I'm based, or alternatively, I can organize that longer extended holiday. And I've done that often and we will take in the tourist sites and the uh, one day or two days chasing ancestry at the same time. Yeah, wherever you go in Ireland, there's something beautiful to see, something interesting to see, and we'll always incorporate that in the route and in the journey. It's not going to just be about the ancestry. It's about visiting Ireland and enjoying it and tasting it. Uh, yeah. Wonderful food here, wonderful drink here, far more than Guinness, uh, which is of good, but of course we have probably a thousand craft beers at least here to experience endless different kinds of dairy product, cheeses, uh, breads. Uh, our seas are full of fish. Our fields are full of grass fed uh, animals naturally produced. This is a great foodie place. Um, and if you're interested in food, Ireland's just a wonderful place to visit. Condé Nast, just before lockdown, said Ireland was the up and coming food destination of the world. And then add to that our, our tradition of music, our cultural traditions. Not only do you have a living um, Irish music phenomenon, Celtic music phenomenon, we have our traditional music, but it's part of our popular culture and it's influencing everything in terms of mu musical production. But you've got bands like Phenomenons, like U2, the largest grossing rock band in the history of the planet, Irish, 100% Irish, living in Ireland. Mm. Um, and so on. And there's a countless long list of people there who are as famous as that. And there's new ones coming all the time. You've also got this huge tradition of literature. Uh, you know, uh, Dublin's a world heritage city, city for literature in the English language. So you've got this tremendous literary heritage. Um, Ireland is so multifaceted. It's got so many different things going for it uh, in terms of a place to visit. Uh, you know, it's beautiful scenery, historic sites, great friendly people to visit. Uh, with uh, Irish people love to chat, love to talk. Uh, They're friendly. They smile at you all the time. Um, great whiskey. Yeah. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And like I can say, not just in Jemison, but uh, just the leading brand that people would know about. But there are now dozens of boutique whiskey distilleries. Mm -hmm. And they're not just producing whiskey, they're producing world-class gin as well. Mm -hmm. So 
the gin phenomenon is huge here uh, and their local Irish gins, in fact, winning prizes is the best gin in the world. Um, so you've got all of that. You've got the eating and drinking and you've got the cultural experience and you've got the friendly people and you've got lovely places to stay, comfortable people to, to travel around with, your comforts looked after, great yeah. hotels, um, great bed and breakfasts. <laughs> you know, the product is really, really excellent. And on top of that, you've got great connectivity. You're in Europe and you're in Northern Europe and you're in a place which has airports and has very good connectivity to the rest of the world. So it's easy to get here too. And that's important. Yeah, no, it is. I think that's, I think you, I think you sold it well there, John. I think uh, if, if anyone's listening from anywhere in the world, I think John is a man if you want to go yeah. on a little tour around Ireland so and I appreciate. If I can just say, I have two tour, uh, two um, uh, websites go. Uh, you can contact me through. John's Tours of Ireland, which is my tourism related site, and that has Ancestry Tours on it. But I'm about to launch my new one, which is findmyirishancestors.ie.com. And that will be dedicated to people who want to research ancestry, understand it more, and also have that ancestral experience. And the reason I'm doing that is the way the Google rankings work. Um, tours of Ireland don't get the rankings among the genealogy websites. And people often are searching there for this experience. So I'm putting one in there as well. And they're linked websites. So that's going to launch in a matter of weeks now, my new one. So what yeah. you can do is book an ancestral research and then following, we find out where it is, create the bespoke holiday to deal with that as well, to go to that location. Mm. So that's what that website will be all about. That's great. Yeah, I'll, I'll post them up when I'm posting up the episode. That's great, yeah. John. Thanks for coming on for a chat. Uh, I hope I didn't take too much of your time up. I know you're busy. Not man. at all. My pleasure. Lovely talking about this subject, as you probably realize. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. I'll tell you, I've learned so much today, and I'm, I'm sure the listeners will definitely appreciate, like, yeah. you went through the the, the, the history, the, the going back to years, going to the modern day times. You really kind of fill in all the gaps One as well. One question that keeps coming up, and perhaps I should just finish with that, Go is on. Americans often get confused because they can't find census records for Ireland. Um, before 1901. And their ancestors left before 1901. That's simply because we don't have them. They don't exist. 1864, civil registrations, so we got births, marriages, and deaths by the state being registered after 1864. Before that, we have to deal with church records. Now, the church records are available, but only Catholic church records are online at the moment. And all Protestant denominations are not directly online and you need to be able to figure your way out through all of that. Add to that, Catholic church records are in Latin, frequently, um, in a Latin and in an anglicized version of the Gaelic name. So you need skill to decipher all of that. And this is where somebody like myself comes in. It's not as simple as going back to the census in the US, where you can go one census to the next one, and you can locate people, and you can find their mm. birth marriages. And they get lost when they get to Ireland. The important thing to know is the records are here. We can find them, but you really need to engage with somebody like me if you hit what they were, what they call the brick wall, which is you can't figure out where we go next. Uh, there are advice groups available and you can do keep going yourself, but there is a limit in what you can achieve sitting in, an, in, an, in North America. You need to be on the ground in Ireland a lot of the time to be able to go and visit the archive as well. So that's the problem that people face. I solve all those problems. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah no, no, I, I well believe that. Now, I, I, actually, speaking of census, there's a census coming up this year, actually. I, I'd be fascinated to see how Ireland has changed. Ireland is changing. It's ever changing. The last 20, 30 years, the Ireland from the 90s is very different from what today is, you know. So yeah. I'd be fascinated to see what the census is like because we have a, a very multi-diverse uh, culture. You know, even Dublin, if you walk around Dublin, you'll see a lot of different cultures. It's very much a like a hub city for a lot of big tech companies. It's also very much a cultural hub, as you said. Foodie, I believe coffee is quite popular in Dublin these days. I believe it won. Yeah, coffee, coffee was rated. Dublin was rated one of the best coffee destinations in the world. The yeah. Irish are into the coffee. Yeah, yeah. It used to always historically be into tea, and tea, yeah. that's the legacy of the British Empire and India being part of the British Empire, of course. And we're tea drinkers, mm. and we have good tea. It should be said, <laughs> you know. But coffee culture has taken off, yeah. big time, and you get very good coffees here. Um, uh, just on that. Um, 
this phenomenon of the new Irish, which you're referring to, this multinationalism in mm. Ireland. Ireland has always been connected globally. It's a trading place. Mm. It's an island. And just I was talking about people migrating into Ireland. The Irish have migrated out all over the world. So that link to the rest of the world is very strong, the global culture. Recently, Irish, in the last 30 years or so, more and more people have come and settled here. They become the new Irish. And they've fallen into our trap, the same trap that the Norman French fell into and all those other people, the Norse Vikings people. We are very friendly with these people. We take them to the pub. We fill them with Guinness and Jemison. After a while, they forget who they are, where they came from. They marry us and they're Irish. Yeah. So this is now happening to the Polish who came to work here. Yeah. And they have children called Grania and Ushin, yeah. who speak Irish better than I do. Yeah, yeah. And are playing Gaelic football. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so the yeah. new crop, and they're from all over the world, these people, mm. and they're the new Irish. And the Irish yeah. people are welcoming towards those communities. Um, two statistics from the last census. Okay. The second most spoken language on the island of Ireland after English is Polish in the family home. So oh. it's a, it is more spoken in the family home by more people than speak Gaelic. Uh, so I, that, yeah, gives you an idea of the phenomenon that has taken place. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. we are I, the I, second, the yeah. second religious group, and the fastest growing religious group after Roman Catholicism, are not the Protestant Christian faiths. It's Islam. Ah, oh, okay. And once again, it's it's a phenomenon of recent uh, migration. The Islamic people coming into Ireland are largely very well educated. They're in working in IT, they're working in medicine or whatever. And they have the value systems aligned with our value systems. So it's a different form of emigration from Islamic countries to that, which has taken place in other parts in Europe where people are coming from very rural, very poor rural backgrounds and wouldn't be highly educated. So it's a different community here. Um, and, they're, and they are integrating extremely well as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. I think value system. Yeah, I think that's that. That is uh, that's a point. That's an important point there. Value systems. Yeah, because they can assimilate maybe quicker than. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, just because uh, uh, so many people associate Islamic migration with people coming from a very, very poor rural background mm. who wouldn't be highly educated and would work in not well-paid jobs. The Irish Islamic experience of migration is that they're in very well-paid jobs and they're university graduates who are coming okay. here. So yeah. it's a different thing. Um, two other things uh, from remarking about Irish Ireland today, the highest level of, of education in the developed world, in the OECD countries, 53% of under 45s have a bachelor's degree. It's extraordinarily high. Um, uh, we're very highly educated people mm. uh, across, uh, 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 so, and very internationalist and sympathetic to migrants because we were migrants. Most of us have that experience of working in other countries and understand what it is to have to cope with a new culture and a new place and are therefore empathetic, sympathetic towards somebody trying to do that. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. I'm, I'm, I live in the UK. I know it's not too far removed, but I did have it is, it is it's a different uh, experience from, you know, when you come from Ireland and, as you say, have all that experience of. Yeah, I think it's one of the things why, why Irish people are so welcome because they have this experience of being yeah. somewhere else. And yeah. that's, that's uh, part of it. I worked in the Netherlands and Germany and didn't speak the language. Yeah. Yeah, that was a learning curve. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, I'd say so. And, yeah, definitely. And I loved it. And, but, yeah. you know, you had to find your way. And there, it's a different culture. Totally. So um, I worked uh, there for periods in my, in my life, in my early 20s. Mm. So, um, and I learned some, enough to get by the local language. But English was the main means of communication. Um, but I know what it is to feel, you know, I don't read that. I can't understand that. I don't know my way around. I, yeah. Yeah, I know nobody here. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I know, I know, I know. It, it, it'd be stressful because, you know, because our native language is English. And when you're, you're trying to learn a language and you, you want to communicate, because a lot of people want to communicate, but you're just like, oh, I don't know what this, to say, how, how to express myself. But if it was English, I'll just yap on for days you know what i mean yeah it's one of the reasons why the irish are so successful at going around the world and integrating is we have we are native english speakers mm. it is our language it's not in a foreign imposition it is ours it is rooted in us yeah from the 14th century it belongs to us as much as the people on the next door island 
Ah, that's great. Now, John, we could talk all day. Now, yeah, thanks for indeed we could. Thanks for coming <laughs> <on. laughs> off for the chat. And um, once again, have a good one. Hope your your experience your tour goes well tomorrow. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Okay. Take all care of right. yourself. Take nice it easy, to John. Talk to you, Shane. I'll see you. Yeah, take bye. it easy. Bye bye. See you. Bye bye. Bye bye. 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 And that was John Ducey. He was uh, very, oh, very fascinating to learn about this history and genealogy, family history, and being a tour guide. You can see the passion that comes through and the way he speaks about Ireland and heritage and history and culture. I hope you enjoyed this episode. This, my name is Shane. This podcast is called Heartlines, episode 51. Go on back and listen to your other episodes as well. Catch up what's been going on, all the chats I've been having with different guests. Remember, you're always welcome here on Heartlines. Take it easy and bye bye. <laughs>